Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, uh, I'm joined by Randall Rothenberg. Randall is the longtime, I think I can say longtime CEO of uh, the IAB. Depends um, on how you qualify long, but I'll take it. I mean, I guess in the broad sweep of human history, not so long. But for the for the sweep of this industry, um, you're the longest serving CEO, I'm sure. Um, no. No, no, no. no. Oh, uh, I, I, you know, I'm positive that Bob Leodis has been uh, running the ANA longer. No, than but I've... of the IAB. Oh, I mean, okay, well, that's, that's a... what I'm saying. Long time. Okay, okay, let's get into it, Randall. Uh, the world is on fire. So, New York Times uh, today. We're recording this. Um, you know, they came out with uh, their earnings. You know, subs are up. Uh, the the advertising not so much down fifteen percent first quarter they're looking at and this includes print obviously they're looking at um, at fifty to fifty five percent declines uh, it's not good everyone I talk to is saying that they're seeing thirty percent plus declines in in digital ad revenue you guys are tracking this how bad is it out there well I mean th- those figures are consistent with the tracking that uh, that we've been doing I think as you know because you've been uh, publishing this we've been doing uh, bi-weekly uh, surveys of, of advertising agency and brand leaders and then with publishing leaders and they're both very very consistent uh, with each other so you know it's tracking you know roughly broadly at a down, you know, 25 to 30% rate. It's obviously different you know, by category. Uh, and I, I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more uh, geographic differentiation because we're, we're beginning to get that. Um, uh, it's, it's coming into our ears from a lot of sources as well. I mean, um, you know, unsurprisingly categories like grocery and healthcare are doing a hell of a lot better than say, you know, autos and mm-hmm. travel. So I, I think it's although autos I think is okay, right? I mean, I we did some reporting that auto spending is doing all right. It's picking it's picking up for um, for sure. Um, you know, travel is not, but this is yeah. a, actually one of those one of those um, uh, 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 kind of distinctions or um, what's the word I want to use nuances. Um, uh, yeah, it's one of well, it's more than a nuance. It, it's kind of it's one of the reasons that um, these aggregate statistics are of limited utility. Uh, because when you look at the aggregated uh, you know, statistic 30% down, uh, that says one thing. You know, when you look at uh, uh, grocery, I'm just picking this number out of the air because I'm not sure if it's true, 10% down and travel being 70% down, that actually says something uh, much more important, especially if you're in, the, in any part of the marketing media or advertising business. Yeah, a large publisher told me um, yesterday that their technology ad spending is up 100%. 100%, it's a big category. Yeah. So yeah, that is true, but the overall market is is down, and, and particularly in, in key categories, um, even CPG. And look, there's there's winners and losers, and obviously P&G saw, and, and Unilever has seen, has seen sales increase. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for for obvious reasons, but you see the the beverage giants uh, pull back spending. Let me ask you this: How is what you're seeing right now? And, and we're still pretty early into this, unfortunately. I think. Um, how is this the same? And then how is it different from what we saw after uh, the financial crisis? Well, I want to I want to qualify what I'm about to say uh, 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 with um, I'm not sure it's even relevant. 
because, you know, now let's make this segment short. But just, just because, I mean, you know, the, the, the causes of the financial crisis were completely different. It affected people in a utterly different way it, it is to which there is, is like quite literally no comparison whatsoever. Um, there was, if not predictability about the uh, financial crisis and how it would turn out, there was at least a, a flow of understanding to, uh, to know how things would possibly transpire down the road. We've never been through anything like this where the, the outcome uh, was so completely unknowable uh, and uh, the pervasiveness of the impact on all segments and all sectors um, uh, so profound. So that's why I, I kind of wonder because uh, the question comes up a lot, and I just kind of wonder, you know, what are we actually gonna gonna learn from uh, from thinking about two thousand? So, so let me just like put in like so that a lot of people go. Um, I'm one of the few people, by the way, because I, I, no, I, I appreciate this a lot. But but so maybe I'm an outlier here. But a uh, little bit. But I think it's it's an important distinction because a, um, a key issue is when you talk about categories that are down. Every time a downturn happens. Everyone comes out of the woodwork and says that the advertisers that, that keep spending in a downturn come out of it stronger. They gain share, and 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 not every, many, if not most, CFOs and 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 their their bosses or CEOs put that aside and and cut and cut spending because it's viewed as a cost center. Um, and people go back to the financial crisis and they have examples from it. So you're saying basically that that doesn't even apply to this because. I mean, again, I think as with most things, it applies and it doesn't apply. It'll apply in certain categories. It won't apply in other categories. I mean, if you want to, if you, and here I'd be speculating the way anybody else would be mm -hmm. speculating. As a general principle, as a general principle, the idea of zigging when everybody else is zagging uh, can certainly make sense if there is a diminution in the total amount of advertising and you have an opportunity to insert your brand just for um, you know, a, a visibility uh, purposes into a lot of places, that may do you well. It, you can do it a lot more cheaply now and potentially a lot more effectively now than you could at any other point in time. There's a lot of television inventory that's available to you, probably at good prices. Lord knows there's a lot of digital inventory available to you at, uh, at pretty good prices, audio uh, inventory available. So there's lots of opportunities to, uh, to make brand impact. I think it's hard to argue with that. But counterbalanced is, you know, is it the right brand? Uh, is it the right category that you want to have impact in? Is your messaging the right messaging? Uh, are you going to come off as ham-fisted and taking too much advantage of, uh, of a bad situation? Uh, is your messaging going to be so look-alike uh, to everybody else's yeah. messaging? You, you've you, seen, you've so, seen the parody video, right? Like, yes. yes. And, and, and so I, I think what, I, so that's why I think it's hard to make generic comments and generic conclusions about this. I think it's going to be specific to the company, specific to the brand, specific to the need. And again, I want to emphasize over and over and over again, it's going to be specific to the geography. Um, we've been doing a lot of um, exploration of re-entry strategies. And uh, the, the single most significant 
think that uh, anybody can intake is the country is going to open up and maybe then go back in different ways at different paces, different forms of acceleration in different states and different localities within those states. So there's no one size fits all. And I think when you take a step back and you say there's not going to be a one size fits all reentry strategy for anybody in any category anywhere, then you back out of that and say, okay, that means there's not going to be any one size fits all marketing or media or advertising or messaging strategy either. Do you see, I mean, we sh- in, speaking of the U.S., I mean, we should be able to glean some lessons from, from how things unfold in, in Asia and then they're starting to in, in Europe. I mean, we're going to go last, I guess, for better or for worse. We're bigger. Well, we're not bigger than China, but... That's true. Yeah. But, so, I mean, obviously there's complications here, but, like, I mean, we should be able to... Because I think what, you know, look, anytime one of these... Um, and I think this is particular uh, of an issue because we have a health crisis that, you know, can't be solved with economically. Um, but there's always the the lack of visibility. Everyone says lack of visibility. I remember dot-com days, you know, the... You know, these dot-com CEOs are going, oh, we don't have a lot of visibility, which is like, we have no idea what the hell is going to happen. Um, And that is, you know, probably times two. I mean, uh, Jonah Peretti came out today and said the drop that that they were expecting just like a few weeks ago, you know, when they had their initial uh, cost-cutting measures has been way more severe than they expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, How... Do you get? I mean, you're a student of supply chains, and it's like, how how do you get out of this lack of visibility and not just sort of, you know, throw your hands in the air running a business? Well, I think I can speak best to that as somebody who's running a business. So, uh, as you help run a business or run a business, so I think the the best thing you can do is uh, is extrapolate to a degree from personal experience. You know, uh, one is you just simply make your best guesses. You have to do some kind of projecting. Uh, we've done the same projections that everybody else has made. Um, probably there's a single source or projection sitting out somewhere. Somewhere, some individual uh, at one point about 8, 10, 12 weeks ago said, it's going to be between 20 and 30% down. And so that's now what's cascading to all of us. But we've come up with the best guess scenario that uh, that our trade association revenues are going to be 20 to 30 percent down uh well that's a big gap that's a 50 percent gap right there but wait that's, that's a, so you're saying 20 to 30 percent down in in revenue you're expecting but there's scenarios right so like is that like a good medium scenario or a, or a bad scenario mm, it just is I, you know it, it, it if you want me to back back a little what bit degree away. of confidence like if i were to be like you know if you had a bet on you landing between it because like for instance i was talking to uh the, the we don't know you see that's the that's the point you know so you, you don't you, have you a know. lot of confidence that it's only going to be 20 or no i mean everybody is dealing with the uh the same set of uh of unknowns and uh I, the only thing that we share is that we are in the media marketing and advertising industry. So I'm not dealing directly, obviously, uh, as you aren't, with consumers. We're dealing, you know, several steps down that value chain. It cascades, though. Everything cascades. You have people right. not, not right. paying That's their fees. Right, saying. There is, er, I mean. there, there is an er metric out there that, you know, somebody somewhere is the originator of 
20 to 30% down in the, uh, that has now gotten passed on to all of us. So we have the same confidence that everybody else uh, does, and that's what we're planning towards. Could it be worse? Absolutely, it could be worse. Could it be better? Yes, it could be better. I mean, uh, it could end up that the uh, uh, sheltering in place after several months in certain locales um, can allow a return to some forms of normal, and there could be a spike up in manufacturing activity and consumer activity, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard for us to be confident about anything right now, and the best we can do is just plan the best we can. Let me ask you this, just to stay on, on your business, because there's some overlap, so I have particular interest. Are you planning on having any in-person events again this year? We are not planning on it. Um, and in fact, we are planning uh, fundamentally on not. Uh, we haven't foreclosed the possibility, um, but we just think it's unlikely. And, and so we're doing, I think, what everybody should be doing who makes any um, substantial form of revenue from events, which is trying to, you know, come up with new uh, inventive and creative ways of, uh, of bringing people together, of creating marketplaces uh, and allowing insights to travel from human beings to human beings. Yeah. I think one of this, the, the, maybe it's a cliche at this point, um, things out of this is that it'll accelerate trends. Um, what, what do you end up seeing? It's, it is again, still early, but I think more people I talk to are starting to think about the lasting impacts of this on the business. Um, what, what are two or three that you are particularly focused on? So uh, I'll preface it by saying, by giving kind of a headline uh, philosophy to uh, to the way I think about uh, about business and life, and I think the single most important philosophical observation about economics, business, and industry uh, is encapsulated in the phrase, "How are you going to keep them down on the farm once they seen Paris?" So that means you want to look at what are people taste testing uh, to some degree of scale and in such a way that the likelihood of them turning the taste test into an <clears throat> ongoing habit is high or higher than you would normally think. So those are the things that I'm most interested in. What are people taste testing uh, and where does this go? So uh, after I say that, you know, everything else I would have to say kind of, I think, comes off as conventional. Um, it, it seems abundantly clear to me that the massive taste testing of over-the-top video, streaming, AVOD and SVOD, whatever acronyms you want to use, there's no returning back from that. Now, this has been an ongoing trend, you know, penetration of the Hulus and the Netflixes and the Amazon Primes has been, you know, trending significantly up for several years. Um, but the degree to which this is now extending down into what well, at one point we would have called the long tail of OTT, I don't know what you call it now, um, I think that's, that's pretty profound. And so I think that we've reached the, uh, that moment, that inflection point when the 10,000 channel universe, or however we want to think about it now, is a reality. Um, that's one, as a subset of that, really, 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 really interesting 
the um, you know the the coming on strong of esports gaming networks. Again, no surprise there. You know, Twitch and a couple others were trending pretty far up, but the acceleration has been pretty profound, especially given the lack of live sports other uh, in other places. So those to me are really interesting, and I would put those at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think, you know, shortly or, or just a little bit underneath uh, is again kind of equally obvious. Um, the people haven't been able to go to stores and haven't wanted to go to stores. So the uh, the really I don't know what the word is, just the, the, the striking, you know, increase in uh, digital shopping. Uh, now, penetration was already very high. There weren't that many consumers who hadn't shopped online before. But what we've learned now from all manner of consumer research over the past several weeks is pretty much everybody who has not shopped online has now begun to shop online. And different categories of shopping that were still holding their own in, uh, uh, in retail are now you know, flipping. So I think the uh, this is... Uh, significantly going to accelerate uh, one of the trends that we've been identifying in our disruptor brand research for the past couple of years, just that stores, physical brick and mortar stores are uh, no longer for, uh, for shopping. Uh, they're actually for, um, for uh, 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 entertaining, uh, they're for servicing, but they're not actually for discovery and for purchasing. And then aside on the side of that, I'd say that this is now, uh, I don't know if I want to be as dramatic as saying the death knell of, but I will. So let's do it. I'm among friends. I think it's the, uh, the, the, the final uh, death knell for the store launched brand. Keep in mind that through the entire history of consumer brands, I mean, the entire history of consumer brands, there were only two ways to discover a uh, discover a brand uh, and the products within that brand. One was inside the store and the other was through media advertising. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was it. There are no alternatives to that. Um, now, the what we've been chronicling in the IEB brand disruption research is the rise of the, the concept of storelessness with a storeless brand um, and the understanding that now the Increasingly, the norm is that brands are launched outside of stores and even in many cases outside of media advertising. Um, I think the notion of brands now launching inside stores, which has been the, the norm for 150, 200 years, that's over. So, so let's, let, let's return to the, to the publishing business, right? So let's, let's focus on the A of the IAB, the advertising. Is this the death knell of the ad-driven business model for news publishers. I mean, you see you see the New York Times business bifurcating over the years and thank God for them that they made that pivot to subscriptions. I mean, you compare the New York Times versus some of these newspaper companies and it's it's amazing. And now maybe subscriptions are a winner take all, but give me the case for why this isn't a giant wake-up call that Relying on advertising is a horrible business model for a news publisher. Okay, so uh, uh, I know more about this than I have any right to because I was All actually right. covering this as uh, this issue, as you might remember, 
uh, although you were a wee lad at the time, <laughs> wee lad, yes. in, the, uh, in the late 1980s. And the fact of the matter is that the newspaper industry, I want to be very clear that I'm talking about newspapers, that the newspaper industry has been uh, declining in the United States since at least the mid-1960s. The peak of, uh, ad, uh, the peak of uh, newspaper circulation in the United States was 1984-1985. It had been declining steadily since then. The peak of newspaper advertising in the United States was, I believe, 2001. Um, and the reason there was a lag uh, that, that advertising was still growing as readership and circulation was declining is that in most of the uh, locations, uh, newspapers, as circulation was going down, there was increasing concentration of newspapers in individual uh, DMIs. And those newspapers were very free to raise advertising rates during that period because there was no competition. Remember, there was no effective competition for local advertising from cable until the late 90s uh, and early 2000s. So it's a long way of saying that the newspaper industry as an industry was either willfully ignoring the decline in circulation for several decades because they were having a fantastic time taking profits for a long period, um, or else they weren't so willful. They were just happy to take the profits yeah, and weren't really uh, thinking much about the future. This is so, true. There should, there should be an entire Hague commission on newspapers, but like from, from a, a fundamental, fundamental business model, give me the case for, for advertising even being a business model for publishing content of any kind in 2020 after coronavirus, when we've seen coronavirus keyword blocking when we've seen the bottom fall out of the ad market and you know why in the world is advertising still a preferred business model for many publishers well i mean again not to get too too lengthy or long-winded but uh europe always had this right and america always had this wrong and this is goes way 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 back in u.s history um, and I'll just like a little anecdote and, mm -hmm. and you may have still been a wee tyke, but you may have also been a working professional at the time. Uh, but I well remember when the economist, uh, began publishing in the, uh, United States, which my recollection was sometime in the 1980s. I think it was after I was already gone from the times and people were astonished people in our industry, especially in the magazine industry, were just astonished that the. Uh, the Economist had the gall the, or the temerity or the ignorance or the lunacy to charge $120 a year for a subscription, where Newsweek could be gotten for under $10 a year for a subscription if you were buying it through Publishers Clearinghouse or one of the other stamp houses. Um, and I remember uh, researching and reporting on this at the time because it was an interesting interesting question. And the answer was, if you go back in US history, um, uh, uh, when the United States became a national marketplace in the late 19th century, that marketplace, mid to late 19th century, that marketplace was so big, so vast, so laden with opportunity, that it just made much more economic sense 
to premise your, uh, your revenues, your growth, the stability of your company as a publisher on advertising. That's when the, pen, the concept of the penny press also came into existence. Why would you charge your end consumer a lot of money when the advertisers are just so, there's so many of them out there. They're so proliferant. They're so willing to spend. In Europe, by contrast, every individual market was much smaller than the United States. You didn't have uh, as many companies. You didn't have as many advertisers. So Scale European, in the Netherlands looks different than scale here. That's for so sure. So media in Europe historically always charged consumers more. The consumer, uh, uh, direct consumer payments were considered core parts of revenue in all those media businesses across most of Europe through most of the history of media. That was something that in the U.S. we never learned. We kind of were willfully ignorant, whether it was the magazine business, the newspaper business, even the television business. Because remember, across Europe, people were paying in many, uh, is this like uh, the U.K., they're paying for television access. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, you could say that uh, uh, we were just caught in this historical anomaly and the money was so free and easy that proprietors of publishing companies just didn't have to think a lot about consumer pay until it became too late. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with your premise that, uh, but I would even boil it down, is why would any company in any industry accept one revenue stream uh, rather than multiple revenue streams? That's really the lesson. You need to diversify your revenue streams, period, full stop. I mean, do you think a lot of companies are not publishing companies are not going to come through this at all? Well, sure, but I mean, I mean that's no different than I mean, that would have been that would have been the case had there been no COVID. I mean, we're going through a very long term uh, significant disruption. The internet represents one of the these kind of foundational disruptions uh, across all industries. We've already seen all manner of. Uh, Companies going out of business, consolidations, declines, pivots. I don't think that's, you know, this, again, will accelerate certain things. Sure. But I don't think it changes the uh, the overall direction. Yeah. It was described to me also, it'll be the corona flush. Use the flush bad business decisions and bad business models under... Um, the excuse that it was all coronavirus's fault. Yeah, I, I want to get I want to get back to, to something because we've been doing a lot of work on it at IEB, and that has to do with uh, with news publishing and, yeah. and news itself. Because there's another misnomer that's kind of always it, it, it's a foot in the land, and it's so prevalent that it it almost never even gets acknowledged or thought about. And there's this reflex that we all have when we think of news that we just think of newspapers. And the news industry is a hell of a lot larger than the newspapers, sure. okay? Uh, it's the television industry, and there's a big, giant news segment in the television industry. Big, giant segment in the digital industry. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Verizon Media is now the, uh, the largest or one of the two or three largest uh, single employers of, uh, of journalists in the United States and possibly the world. Um, so it's a big and diverse industry, one. Two is, you know, the, uh, the consumer need for news is no less than it's ever been. And right now in this moment, 
clearly greater than it has been for decades and decades and decades. And then three, news, you know, the, the mental model we have of news is not the actual way people consume news. Your mental model and my mental model is we report on fact-based stories and business and politics. Uh, but a lot of people who are consuming news are consuming entertainment gossip and they're consuming um, television listings and they're consuming movie reviews. Those are all news as well. Um, and so when you step back from that, you realize how diverse the news is, how necessary it is, and how pervasive a part of people's lives it is. It's quite clear that uh, the news is going to survive. Um, what we're in the middle of is a very, very uh, interesting, important recognition of the misalignment between the importance of news and the pervasive consumption of news, misalignment between that and the ability of companies to monetize because the technologies that have gotten inserted into the middle of those relationships um, are not being used properly. Uh, okay, so explain that. Are you talking about the keyword blocking? Yeah, keyword blocking is a perfectly so, good. Example. So you're in the the you know I think there's 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 a couple of camps maybe there's many camps I don't know but uh, there's people who blame the the keyword um, the brand safety providers um, and there's people who say no guns don't kill people people kill uh, people so you know it's it's just that they're being misused so you're saying they're being misused they're clearly being misused that's an easy one you know although the defaults are very powerful as you also know so. Yeah, I mean, there is clear misuse. It's much easier to set a default and then walk away and not worry about it. Um, you know, especially if you are a mid-level person or a junior person um, on an account or uh, you know dealing with the issue. You don't want to kind of think too hard. You got other things that you need to. We're not, think we're not going to blame the twenty-five-year-old media planner, are we? Not not on this time, because I don't know how old they are, and I don't know whether it's media planner. <laughs> don't you remember? That was always like a joke. We actually started our confession series because we wanted to actually hear from the 25-year-old media planner everyone complained about. Yeah, you know, so we I, found a 25-year-old media planner. Yeah, I know. You did the story about uh, 20 years after I did the story. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did. I put it on the front, the, uh, front of the business section of the New York Times in 1988. Okay. Well, I was a sophomore in high school. I don't know. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can't. And I'm an old guy. So, <laughs> but but anyway, back, backing up here um, and not casting any blame. One of the things that has become really clear as we've pursued the initiative that we're calling hashtag News Saves Lives is that there's quite clearly a misalignment. Uh, uh, people not knowing how to use the tools in the best way. People taking pot shots, companies and sectors taking pot shots at each other, you know, across the bow, rather than getting into the same room and saying, okay, how can we improve the situation? One of the things that we've learned, this has been a really great thing that's been uh, occurring at IEB for the past couple of years, but this crisis has accelerated it, is the realization that our value is as the big tent organization, the place that can uh, draw uh, executives and co companies and leaders and then uh, senior executives and even more junior operating executives uh, together from across these otherwise contentious divisions to get publisher CROs and programmatic executives in the same room 
and to get them together with uh, media buying executives at agencies and the CMOs and, uh, and chief investment officers that they work for into the same place to listen to the same things and potentially come, uh, uh, come to grips with certain operating standards and importantly, even technical standards. So that, 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 that typically is a very long process and, and we're in a crisis right now. We don't have time for long processes. So how, what is the role of the IEB in getting this sorted out like well, quicker? Quite specifically over the past six weeks. Is that how long we've been locked up? Yeah. About uh, eight weeks. Okay. So eight weeks we've gathered in about a half dozen different settings, a total of 300 or 400 people from the publishing industry, the brand uh, sector, from the agency sector, and from uh, technology companies like the Double Verifies and the IASs and the Googles and others, like literally done, brought them into the same room for presentations and discussions back and forth about how better to use the tools, how potentially to develop common standards for the tools, uh, and just to create kind of the open dialogue. Um, and we know, we absolutely know that this has had positive impact because we've heard it from the publishers themselves. So yes, you know, to, to actually, you know, create say technical standards, well, sometimes it can take longer than creating a vaccine, but you know, sometimes, sometimes you can actually come up with therapies that don't require new vaccines and work really quickly. All right. I like the way you did there. Okay. So last thing I want to talk to you about, there was a study that came out today. This is a little bit of a blast from the past. I was like, oh, I didn't know this was still news. But anyway, PwC, I know they're a partner of yours. They partnered up with uh, ISBA over in the UK and and did another deep dive onto the supply chain. And, and guess what? Half the money doesn't get to publishers. Um, and then I guess what was new was this 15% quote unquote, unknown Delta. It sounds very scary, an unknown Delta. Um, what was your take on, I mean, it was a little bit of gambling in Casablanca for me, but I mean, I think we, we know this, don't we? I mean, it's a couple of things. You know, one is it, it kind of came across our desk and said, this is the UK. UK marketplace has nothing to do with the US marketplace. So it's hard for me to even parse what the comparisons are or aren't. So I would put that aside. Um, it's, I, I just, you know, I don't know enough about the, uh, the guts of the study. The, uh, the inefficiencies of the digital advertising supply chain, as you know, <laughs> uh, it's a subject that's been a hobby horse of mine since I got into this job almost 15 years ago. Um, is it better now or worse than 15 years ago? I think it, it, it's better, uh, 15 years ago, when I was using the language of supply chains, people would look at me as if I had horns on my head and was speaking in tongues. They just didn't have a concept in the media and advertising industry of what a supply chain was. So there's certainly been an advance because everybody's talking about supply chains now in supply chain safety, supply chain efficiency, uh, uh, supply chain security. Um, and the effectiveness of uh, of activities that take place, and in the broader and in the broader landscape, I mean, supply chains are now um, front and center, and understanding how um, how they actually work or or sometimes don't work. 
Yeah. By the way, just as a, as a sidebar, uh, in uh, 2001, actually, I think we did this in 2000. No, it was still late 2001. After uh, September 11th, you know, I was working at uh, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, the uh, consulting firm. And uh, we began working uh, very assiduously on developing a, a kind of insights in the service offering that we called, eventually uh, started terming enterprise resilience. And we did a uh, and I worked to help set it up, uh, a simulation with, it must have been 20 or 25 government agencies uh, uh, when we did it down in the D.C. area that was simulating a uh, pandemic uh, and looking, among other things, at supply chain resilience uh, in the U.S. economy in the midst of a pandemic. So this has been one of these things that the uh, Booz Allen alumni have been Kind of communicating about remember when we discovered x remember when we discovered y mm-hmm. uh, and again interesting to me coming into this job thinking very acutely about supply chains and taking years to get people to even understand the language so i think that is a good thing that is a good um, a, a, a very positive change the, the more difficult one but i'm actually really hopeful now more than i more than i have been ever in the past 15 years is that it has been extraordinarily difficult to get the um, uh, the various segments, players, companies, and executives across the vast and unruly uh, marketing media supply chain to agree on the basic uh, best practices and technical standards that must undergird any industry supply chain. The fact that we are still having debates and arguments around things like measurement, around fraud, around consumer safety, uh, around fake news is astonishing and uh, enormously dismaying. These things could not be allowed to exist. They were bled out of the food industry decades and decades and decades ago. They were bled out of the auto industry uh, by uh, beginning in the mid 1960s. And yet we're still having these debates. Who's the Ralph Nader? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, when I testified in the U.S. Senate back in a little more than a year ago, that was the analogy that I was using. I said, you know, we're at our it's uh, unsafe at any speed moment. Uh, And the lessons from the uh, the changes in the auto industry are, you know, very positive. So, number one, uh, that. Uh, massive industrial resistance can be overcome by consumer action. Second, you can actually see that there are necessary roles for the federal government, for state governments, and for industry self-regulation. All of them play important roles. Um, And that there has to be some kind of unified leadership taking charge of this. That's where I'm feeling most positive now. I think our biggest gap over the years uh, in getting to uh, consistent uh, technical standards and uh, operating practices for the digital media and marketing supply chain. Biggest obstacle has been the lack of knowledge and understanding in the large brands themselves. Hmm. Um, That they have a long history of kicking these things to their agencies. The agencies have a long history of kicking it to the publishers to, to resolve. And that doesn't work. Wouldn't work in the food industry. 
uh, wouldn't work in the auto industry, doesn't work in the media industry. So basically it's grown to the point where brands can't just like turn a blind eye and be like, yeah, eh, and they're not. Whatever. And they're not. And and I look at I look at initiatives like the Garm Initiative, the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, as a really important, uh, extraordinarily healthy, but an important development because what it is, it's about big brands taking ownership of the problem and also taking ownership of the solutions to the problem. And among other things, not kicking the development of those solutions, not kicking that can downstream but taking ownership themselves and also uh, showing the uh, real willingness to insource the capabilities that they need to assure the health and safety of the entire supply chain. So I think that's, you know, going back to the original question. Especially marketers have to get, have to get their hands dirty. They have to get involved. That That's like, I mean, it's where the money starts. So without, without them like really getting on board with like, Hey, we got to fix this. You can no longer, if you're a marketer, you can no longer, uh, no more assure the safety of your end consumers in digital environments than you could uh, assure the safety of the consumers of your food products if you kicked food safety down to your yeah. suppliers. You know, it, 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 it is everybody's responsibility to assure the safety of their customers and consumers. And they have to be co-creators and co-implementers of the solutions. As the guy who's been sitting on top of the supply chain language and the technical standards for the past 15 years, I've wanted nothing more, nothing more than to put us out of business because everybody else starts taking responsibility for doing the things that we've been doing on a much too lonely basis. Um, since the founding of IEB. All right, Randall, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for that little detour down the uh, programmatic abattoir, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it going to be a gruesome place. Thanks again, um, and thank you all for joining us. Um, we'll be back next week with a new episode.